Hello and welcome to the Mindcast, brought to you in association with the UK's leading mental health charity, Mind. My name's Matt Wilkinson and with me is Siobhan O'Neill, who's from London and has experience of bipolar disorder. Siobhan, let me start by asking you, how would you best describe what bipolar is? All or nothing. When you're well, when you're really well, anything is possible. You feel like you're a genius, actually. You feel like you're the only person in the world who can see it the right way. Undiagnosed, spent so much money. Oh my God, you've no idea how much money. And got myself very seriously into debt. Ordered so many things from catalogues and would do do gambling, did quite, did quite a lot of gambling actually. Um, would do things that were about glamour and wanted instant gratification in all kinds of ways. The lows, the nothing, is just about having nothing left in you. You're even beyond tears. You're even beyond thought. My actual diagnosis is rapid cycling bipolar disorder. And so I tend to move up and down every, every 12 weeks or so. The tricky bit when you're in the low part and you're very depressed and lacking in motivation is the moment when you start to begin to get well and you experience a kind of mixed state. Because if you're active that's the moment when it's quite tricky and that's the moment when you might actually consider taking your own life. That's the bit you have to manage the most carefully. At either end of the spectrum, it is all or nothing. You touched on the high or manic phase just now. I think less is known about that compared to the depressive side of the condition. So how would you explain it? As you're moving up through it, you feel fantastic. You think you can move mountains, you can run marathons, um, that you have the best ideas in the world. But of course, what happens is your body starts to wear and you get very tired. And also people are getting tired of you for going on and on. Um, Your speech will be much more rapid. You won't sleep. You'll probably be sweating quite a lot as well. Your, your, Your body is just kind of on alert all the time. So, of course, as it goes up, it moves through that fantastic moment where you're, you become really uncomfortable and irritable and you can't understand why people can't see things the way you see them. You're moved to tears by watching TV and thinking, God, I, I know how to, to get rid of world famine. You want to be able to communicate some great ideas, but you can't do it. Your skin, I've often described it as feeling as if I'm wearing my skin inside out, that all my nerves are outside and it's incredibly uncomfortable. That's the moment when you you know you're unwell. When did you first become aware of your bipolar? My mother would always describe me as quite a sensitive child. Um, I was quite quiet, quite bookish. When my dad left when I was about 11, I definitely went into a depression then. It probably wouldn't have been recognised, but I do have very strong memories of not actually speaking to anybody at all which is quite difficult going to school and not actually answering the teacher or anything. I just physically felt like I couldn't even speak. And kind of fast forward to kind of 20 years or so later, that was one of the features of my depression, that I would just simply be completely unable to speak. And did you seek any help when you were younger? What were the circumstances that led to when you sought help for the first time? I would say that I'd had kind of quite a lot of peaks and troughs because it's during your teenage years Those peaks and troughs, the ups and downs, that kind of thing seems like hormones, but it was much more marked in me. I think that uh, I would have been variously described as volcanic or just completely quiet. When I was 19, um, after a particularly difficult, broken relationship, 
I attempted to take my own life. And it was then that uh, my own GP uh, became more involved with trying to sort out some kind of more permanent support. But it didn't last for very long because that was the point when I went to university and accessed some level of psychiatric services there. The counselling service at the poly were really helpful, but it really didn't touch the sides. I was still behaving in the same way, still staying up all night, and all my uh, coursework was late. And then, of course, leaving and travelling for a while meant that I just didn't have any access, and by the time I came back, I was very unwell. I started a, a job for a telephone company working on a switchboard helpline. Uh, and again, it was shift work, so that really did play havoc with my body clock. And again, I always seemed to opt when I was really um, full of energy to go for the night shifts. I then decided that I could also do a second job. So I was often working at times in excess of 100 hours a week, just pushing and pushing and pushing, and then being unable to work at all. At what point did you go... I can't keep doing this, something's wrong, I need to go and seek help. I did have a very, very serious breakdown uh, when I was 30, uh, which necessitated me taking almost a year off work. And I had been working incredibly hard before that happened. I also had a two-year-old son, and so it was a very, very difficult time. I was fully supported by psychiatric services in, in my local area, but it only ever appeared because what I'm presenting with was very severe depression and exhaustion. It just seemed as if I had a, a depressive illness. So as a, um, it's really quite late on for me. And it was that, that moment, that kind of white light where I just thought, I can't carry on like this. I was 38 when I went to the bus stop one morning and thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm living in the highs, in the moments when I can do lots of things and be really creative and doing really good work. But it's the low points that are really, really hard for me. I have to say also that the, the high points would become very uncomfortable and then I would crash um, and become very exhausted. And so, again, through a referral through my, my GP in London, um, I then met another uh, consultant and started the same routine again. But this time I actually said, I think there's more to this than just depression because I felt so very uncomfortable with who I was and I just felt that I I felt such a, um, a crushing sense of failure that I wasn't managing and particularly because I had uh, a child as well. I didn't, I didn't want to live this life that was so erratic and I didn't want to feel that I was always on the edge of something terrible happening. You say you had a number of breakdowns. What is a breakdown? For me, it feels like I've just come to a complete stop. It's like I've reached the end of whatever journey that I've been doing, that I've been full of energy, full of ideas, probably getting quite angry with people because they didn't seem to understand their connection to the universe or to the ideas that I had, that, that things that we could do, things we could achieve... And then it would just come to a complete stop. And then it would just be a sheer drop. In the run-up to that, there has been instances of alcohol abuse, inappropriate relationships, anything to stop the, the feeling of pain, actually. But when the moment comes, it's for me, it's a bit like a cartoon where um, someone runs off the edge of a cliff and they just held for a second before they drop. And how long does a, a breakdown episode go on for? Is that... A couple of days? Is that a month? 
that you're feeling like that? It depends on probably how long you haven't slept before uh, the, the crash occurs. Sleep is an extremely important part of managing bipolar disorder. If your sleep pattern starts to slip, if you're not sleeping properly um, or if you're not sleeping at all, then it's always something that you should seek help with. It's just about the measure of balance and ensuring that your your body is rested because if your brain is going too quickly, you, it will wear your body out very quickly also. It's about the body and the mind recovering together, really. Of the major breakdowns I've had, one took about seven months to get well, properly well, and another took a year. And when you said you went to the bus stop that day, was that just after a breakdown? No, I'd had several weeks of... No, I'd had several months of not being able to function properly. I felt really, really lonely. Um, Not really had anybody to talk to. Um, I would work all day and be all sparkling and... Or in my head, I thought I was being sparkling and um, enthusiastic and all those things. And then I would come home to my um, social housing flat as a single parent living on a huge council estate in London and it felt like I was I was split there were two parts of me and I couldn't bring the two together I would try and have my son looked after by anybody who would have him and just go out all night and would write and write and write all those behaviors had kind of contributed to me just becoming rapidly more and more exhausted and redundancies were happening in the organization I was working at and I think that that probably triggered my stress levels into overload and I became incredibly frightened all the time very paranoid somehow managed to keep keep on taking care of my son but I have huge regrets about that I probably didn't look after him as well as I could not that I was under ever any scrutiny but I wasn't the best parent that I could have been because I was so so much thinking about me all the time what changed then I mean this sounds like you're going through a a turbulent time both at work and with your experiences and you're going out and you're writing lots is are these manic phases would you say yes definitely so at what point did things start to settle down for you was that when you were diagnosed yes actually it's it's a really interesting area because some people don't respond very well to being given a diagnosis it's a label after all but actually for me there was a period of grieving I have to say but kind of make it made sense it just made sense and knowing that there was a pattern because when you live inside yourself you don't see that you do things habitually regularly when you're when you're living w- with a mental health condition that's not diagnosed or it what it does is it just it creates obstructions in your life and somehow for me once that period of mourning was over it it became an opportunity for me to develop myself, to understand myself better. And I think that that's what I've been doing for the last seven years. And I think knowing myself and knowing knowing the triggers that would set me off in my illness, I've actually been able to achieve a better sense of balance. Um, I've not, not yet been able to find employment full-time, and actually that's something that's coming up for me that I, that I really want to do. My son is now 18. He's going to university in, in a couple of weeks. And I think that the time for me is back to build on the next bit, which is 
I'm I'm strong and robust around my condition and how I manage it. Now I need to wait, test it against employment, which is something that's always difficult for people with a, a long-term mental health condition because there are going to be times when I can't offer all of myself. So how do I offer myself to an employer on a full-time basis? When you got your diagnosis, how did your family and friends react? Very, very mixed reaction. Some of the people who were really close to me uh, just said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. There were some people who just absolutely couldn't accept it. But when I reflect on their, their initial responses, it was much more to do with fear. They were responding based on kind of known stereotypes of what mental ill health looks like. Those kind of ideas about people being crazy and they would see that and that they would see me and they wouldn't think that the two things were the same thing. Well, of course they're not because the stereotype doesn't exist in real life. It was very painful to have people just say no because it felt like I wasn't believed, that somehow I I was making it up. Those who did understand, who got it, have been enormously supportive. And, of course, the people who didn't believe have long since disappeared out of my life because, in the end, it's not actually about the diagnosis it's about the, the, the illness and being able to manage it. And also about people loving you and you loving them. We, you know, we deal with different kinds of illness every day and, and people being diagnosed with diabetes or, or some other long-term health condition. We still love the person. You know, it's, it's about behaviours sometimes are intolerable, but we still love the person essentially. And so, as I say, the people who disbelieved or uh, scoffed have long since disappeared out of my life. When you're suffering, what is it that you want from family and friends? It depends on where you are in the cycle. When I'm very depressed, I tend to just take to bed and sleep quite a lot, don't have any motivation, tend to not speak to people. My friends will say they know that I'm in a low phase because I I just go off the radar for a little while. Um, And they leave me to do that because they know that that's necessary, that I just need to rest, really but they wouldn't let it go on for very long. In high phase, prior to diagnosis, what I would do is I would go out every night of the week, but i go out with someone else because i just wear one person out. Now, if I'm very sociable, my friends will identify that that's something that's going on for me, and they'll say, think you might be heading into a high phase. How are you feeling? So they're providing me with insight when insight kind of disappears from me for that time. And it does also help with being able to manage it so that it doesn't become too high, too uncomfortable. So your friends are very important to you in stages like that? Yeah. Have you taken any medication? Yeah, I'm on two types of medication. Um, One is called sodium valproate, which is um, an alternative to lithium. I was really, really blessed, actually, because uh, sodium valproate was the first one I was put on, and it, it suits me. Um, and there tends to be a, f- a fairly, well, there is a split between people who favour lithium in terms of their own body chemistry and those who would prefer to take sodium valproate. And besides that, for the high part of my diagnosis, I also take an antidepressant as well. Prior to diagnosis, I've, I've taken so many different antidepressants and so many of them didn't work. Um, but having... When I, when I went on this particular regime, it was quite uh, high. But because then I, then I introduced lifestyle changes such as exercise 
and meditation and yoga and massage and gardening and lots of kind of life-enhancing things, I've actually been able to reduce the dosage right down to the bare minimum, which means I don't have the same kind of fuzzy-headedness or feeling spaced out or feeling I can't connect with people. That's what's worked for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but it is important to try and find things that help you to feel that you can manage your life. And what other forms of therapies or treatments have you used? Um, I've had CBT. That's cognitive behavioural therapy. Yes, that's right. It's something that needs to be given to you at a time when you're ready to do it. And I think that's the same for all therapy, really. There's no point in just thinking you go through the hoops of whatever is available. Um, You do need to be ready to do the work that cognitive behavioural therapy requires of you. I started and then I had to stop, but when I returned to it, I was so much more motivated and ready to use it in in its its proper way. Um, I'm currently having a much more person-centred therapy, which isn't available through the NHS. It allows me to examine my own past, because whilst I've been unwell and undiagnosed, clearly it's created my own history. And there are many, many things in my past that I regret and it's important to come to terms with that regret and to, to work on it and to build from it in my own personality, how I want to be in the future. I gain the most learning out of that. It's a very long therapy. It goes on as long as you want it. There are other kinds of therapy available, but this is the one that suits me. And you mentioned exercise. Is that something you've always done or is that a, a recent discovery? Well, I suppose actually it probably ties in with the fact that when I used to go out dancing all night and felt really good about myself, then that probably <laughs> that probably figures in it somewhere. But um, I've all, I always loved dance and I always loved exercise. And when things had stabilised after diagnosis and starting to take medication, part of the thing that prompted me was that my weight really ballooned, and um, didn't feel didn't feel like me at all. I felt really really low about it. But I was aware that actually the medication was working in terms of keeping me fairly even. So I decided to take up exercise again and started slowly, just started walking. Um, Then went to the local gym and uh, started doing exercise classes. I was all over the place to start with because it had been a long time, a long time since I'd done any exercise. But the music, the human contact, the laughter pushing yourself that little bit harder each time um it really worked for me it really worked for me and since then I've I've done um the great south run and I've done the great north run as well and one day I will get to do a marathon (laughs) (laughs) that just seems a really really long run (laughs) I think we all say that present day now how does it affect you on a day-to-day basis is it always there yeah it's always there you wake up in the morning and you wonder how is it going to be today um The last few weeks for me have been a bit on the tricky side. I was very low and uh, it was actually my son who said to me, is this what it's going to be like when I go away to university? You're going to spend every day in bed. And I suddenly thought, you know what, I've worked this hard on me. I don't want him to go off to university thinking that he needs to worry about me. He doesn't need to. I've got this support network and I want him to go off and have the benefits of a really wonderful time at university. Mine was quite blighted by my illness because obviously I was undiagnosed. Um, I want him to have fun and I don't want him to worry about me. And so my mood has picked up in the last few weeks because 
it's important for me to make sure that I that I keep going, that I've used distraction around doing lots of different little projects and stuff. I've signed up to do yet another writing course. Yes, I am still writing. Um, and just little bits and pieces to keep me going. And once he's organised and at university, then I'm going to start looking at the prospect of actually getting back into full-time employment. And in terms of applying for a job, is it one of those things you feel you need to tell people or is it one of those things you need to wait until you're asked? I have chosen to tell. Not that I'm not afraid of the, the circumstances, but I just think if you are going to discriminate against me because of my mental health issue, let's talk about it now. Let's do it now because the chances are that if you do, you're not going to interview me. And if you are discriminating against me, then um, that wouldn't be right. And the only way that I feel that I can get through that is to be honest about who I am. My experience of bipolar disorder isn't as severe as some people's. I think the phrase that they use in healthcare circles is that I'm quite high-functioning. That doesn't mean that I don't get unwell. It's just that on the whole, I'm, I have a lot of insight into how my mind works and I take care of myself. That's the reason why I'm high-functioning. But, um, of course, when you say to somebody, I have bipolar disorder, they won't see the subtleties of what that might mean. And clearly where the difficulty would be, particularly with bipolar disorder, is periodically you might become very unwell. You can relapse, of course. But in some ways, it's actually also about just helping people to become aware. It, for me, it helps reduce stigma. The more we talk about this, the more we are open about what that experience is and how it might affect how you might do things, the more people get used to it, to be really honest with you, the more that they see it as part of the, the range of human experience rather than something that's separate and shut away and not talked about. And what would be your best advice for someone who's just been diagnosed with a, a mental health issue? Take some time. Take some time to work through what that might mean for you. Talk to people. Talk to people that you really trust. And be kind to yourself because diagnosis is a big thing. And I think that the more that you get to know yourself better, the more you get to understand what the condition means in terms of the symptoms but also what it means for you it will mean that you might have to grieve your old life and that you'll have to leave it in some form so the partying and the spending and all that kind of thing will almost certainly need to disappear from your life because what's really important is about managing it for yourself when you're first diagnosed you will rely on a lot of other people but there has to come a point where you have to take responsibility for yourself. That's some way down the line. But you need to manage your medication, need to take care of you, need to explain the change in the situation to friends and to loved ones. You will need to manage the things that trigger you. You need to find out what they are in the first place. But then how you're going to minimise them in a way that allows you to live a more balanced life and to prevent relapse in the future. And how do you feel about the future for yourself? I take it one day at a time. Sometimes I can take it a week at a time, but today I'm taking it a day at a time. When things aren't great, if it has to be, I'll take it an hour at a time because I'm aware that I need to pace myself. I'm aware that I need to take care of myself and that it's not just about me, it's about my context, not only in terms of my family, but in terms of society. 
So taking care of me is the most important thing. The future for me, well, the future is what it will be, but it's down to me to make my future. I'm responsible for it. And so, so long as I can take responsibility for who I am and what I want to do and where I want to be, then I'll be okay. Siobhan, thank you very much.